0: His promise. we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are in Hebrews chapter 11 once again. Hebrews 11, we're ready to look at verse 17. We had a uh, theological side trip in verses 13 through 16 where we've had this pattern where we'd have a verse or two or several of by faith, by faith, by faith. We had by faith Enoch, by faith Abel, by faith Noah. And then we would have a pause with a, an explanation of some sort or a doctrinal development. In verse 5 it was a by faith Enoch, and then there was the verse 6 which gave the theology connected there that says, without faith it is impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And so as you read through this chapter, yes, the episodes are useful and, and ble- a blessing to read, to remind ourselves of what those Old Testament stories were all about. But it's these side trips, these, these commentaries, if you will, like a, a divine commentary from the Lord related to uh, these principles of faith. And so when we're talking about Abraham and Sarah and receiving the ability to conceive and the birth of Isaac, uh, that's what we deal with in verses 8 through 12, how a husband and wife can be married for decades or 70 years and longer. We don't really even know how old Abraham and Sarah were when they got married. But assuming the normal age in that, in that era of world history that they were teenagers, and now uh, she's pushing 90, doesn't have a baby yet, and he's 100. All right. They've been married a long, long time. And uh, still believing in the promises here. Well, verses 13 through 16, what we were dealing with last week, I think, has some of the most profound aspects in the book of Hebrews to be found here where we keep our eyes on the coming kingdom, we keep our eyes on the world to come, that we live as aliens and strangers. We're not thinking about what we've left behind. We're not thinking about what what used to be. We're focused on the plan of God. We're focused on what's coming, what He has promised. And believers have always done that. Old Testament believers were doing that, New Testament believers should be doing that. Now we have different promises than Israel had, and the things to come for us are going to be uh, different than the things to come for Israel, but the principle is the same. We're walking by faith, we're trusting God, and we keep our eyes looking forward to the things to come. And that's uh, what we glean out of this chapter. All right, so for this morning we're going to move on to by faith Abraham in verse 17, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Isaac. Before we do get started with this, let's take a moment for silent prayer and ask our Father's blessing upon our time of truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank You for the blessing we have to assemble together on this day. For the freedom in our land. In many places around the world, believers are meeting in secret, or they're meeting in hiding, or they're not meeting at all for fear of being discovered. But we're in a public building, Father, with a sign out front and a website telling the whole world who we are, where we are. And we're thankful that in this grace freedom that you've provided, we can be fed, we can grow. Father, I thank you that the living and abiding Word of God is pure, it's powerful, and it's ours. You've given it to us, Father, and we we treasure it. We thank you for this privilege. We want to be diligent. We want to set aside our distractions. We want to focus entirely upon the truth that you've provided for us on this day. Might we learn it, might we believe it, might we live it. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so as we deal with by faith Abraham, and we're really looking at verses 17 through 19, and we know the story. The story comes from Genesis 21 and and the birth of Isaac in Genesis 22 with his sacrifice and the, uh, the circumstances that happen here. It's a well-known Bible story, so I won't be giving away the end of the story. No spoiler alert here. We know that before he kills his son, God says don't, and so he doesn't, all right? And we're going to read that this morning. We're going to see the chapter. But the points that are being made are, are really um, powerful, and uh, we recognize that it comes down to the very plan of God because you have a father willing to sacrifice his son, And that tells us everything we need to know about the father who is willing to sacrifice his son. Because until we get, you know, that's that's why we're saved, right? Because a father was willing to sacrifice his son. You and I have eternal life because a father did sacrifice his son. And that's the the whole gospel is right there being able to be told in that story. And uh, we'll see that here today. So verse 17 says, "...by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac..." And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. And there's doctrine in this and we want to be clear as we go through and uh, bring these principles out. But remember, he is already walking by faith. He's already justified by faith. He's already believed God and was reckoned to him as righteousness. He's already had enough faith and endured to where he received the promise of a son. And you think, okay, he's done everything God's asked him to do Now it should be clear sailing. No, moving forward, God's going to ask even more. And now comes this task. The son you waited 100 years for, now I want you to kill him. And you think, well, that doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Why did I wait 100 years for this boy, and now you want me to kill him? We're not sure exactly how old he is, what the time frame is. He's old enough to walk by himself. He's old enough to talk by himself. He's old enough to carry his own wood which is what He does here, and I think that itself is typology, that itself is powerful doctrine because didn't Jesus carry His own cross when uh, He was led away from the trial and taken to Calvary? Of course He did. And that imagery of Jesus carrying His cross and Isaac carrying His wood while trusting His Father every step of the way. It's a beautiful picture that we have here. And this was given to the Jewish people in in the first book of the Bible, when Moses writes the first book of, of the Hebrew canon. This story is, is right there for their evangelism, for their edification, for, for everything. And so uh, uh, we're, we're going to be blessed to be looking at these things here today. All right. So when he was tested, he offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac, your descendants shall be called. Remember, there was uh, another son through human effort that he fathered with Hagar, the handmaiden. And so Ishmael was, was older than Isaac. So, well, how can he have two sons and have an only begotten son? Well, we'll explain that. All right. And you're not the first person that had that idea or thought about that. Well, we're going to teach that. But the idea is that Ishmael was the firstborn. Ishmael was the oldest, but he was not the son of promise and he was not uh, procreated through faith. He was procreated through the opposite of faith. When God makes a promise and you decide that He needs help keeping His promise and so you take matters into your own hands and try to do something about it, that's not faith. That's the lack of faith that says God needs your help. Faith says God doesn't need my help and I'm going to wait until He provides what He promised to provide. So Isaac is the son of faith and Ishmael is the son of human effort. And, And Abraham in his heart loved Ishmael, he wanted Ishmael to be the heir and God said no, it's through Isaac shall your descendants be named. Now the God who said through Isaac shall your descendants be named then says, go kill him. Does that seem to contradict? Does that seem to not make any sense? That's why it's faith. That's right. When, uh, when, we don't, when what we're told to do doesn't make any sense, are we still trusting the God who saved us, the God who called us, the God who is laying our course before us? Do we still run with endurance the race that's set before us? Or do we stop and say, God, that doesn't make any sense to me, I'm gonna opt out of this one? No, we walk by faith, we run by faith. This is what we're we're called to do. Even when we don't understand, even when it doesn't make any sense, even when it doesn't seem to be possible like that marvelous song about Noah, it wasn't raining when Noah obeyed. If he would have waited for the rain to start, it would have been too late. You gotta obey even if it doesn't make any sense. Even when God promises to flood the earth and you're like, what's rain? What, I don't understand. You obey God anyway. You do what He tells you to do. And this is what Abraham does. He kills, he, he begins to kill his son. And this was his thinking now. In verse 19, he considered. Isn't that beautiful? See, faith is not just, a, oh well, I'm going to close my eyes and hope for the best. Faith is not a thoughtless slavish obedience, you do consider, Abraham considered, and when there's things that don't make sense, you still consider them, but you then surrender them to what does make sense is that my God is able to do this. My God loves me. My God has a plan. My God knows what he's doing. So he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. This is what Abraham considered. Now, why did he consider that? When has Abraham ever had an example in the Bible of someone rising from the dead? Oh, wait a minute. Abraham didn't have a Bible. (laughs) Genesis hadn't been written yet. Why did Abraham have an idea that someone could rise from the dead, that God could raise someone from the dead? Had that ever happened before? The closest thing that ever happened was Enoch got translated without dying. He got translated out of here. Abraham would have known that story. But the idea of someone who died, that came back to life, that was restored back to this earth... Now while that had not happened, I believe there were prophecies of of that because Job speaks about that. Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives and that even after my flesh is destroyed, from my flesh I will see God. Job understood resurrection. And if Job understood resurrection, why would Abraham not understand resurrection? At least as a possibility. As God who is able to give life is able to give it again to someone that died. So he considered that God is able. God is able. If he is omnipotent, then what is he not able to do? God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which, and the last phrase of this is is, uh, significant, we'll talk about this, from which he also received him back as a type. He also received him back as a type. Now that's an also he received him back as a son. <laughs> he received him back as the heir of the promise. He received him back as the boy that would grow up and get married and have, uh, have children, Jacob and Esau. We, so he receives him back as that, but he also receives him back as a type. Notice that? Which means that this episode, the episode of Jehovah Jireh, is the typological explanation and Old Testament teaching for gospel information. It is Old Testament teaching for a father who sacrifices his only begotten son. And so you can take Genesis 22 and give the gospel if you're an Old Testament believer. That's why it was designed to be there. He receives him back as a type, as a loving father and a trusting son. And that son who's willing to die and that son who is restored. That's the type for the son who does die and the son who is resurrected. That is, of course, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Alright, so what we're looking at here in verses 17 through 19, we're looking at the Abraham and Isaac episode. Abraham and Isaac is the greatest typology of Scripture, my opinion, alright, and so we should put an asterisk there with a footnote in Pastor Bob's opinion, okay? And I guess it's arguable if folks want to defend something else as being a greater type, let me know. I'd be glad to talk to you about it. But of all the types in Scripture, the people that are types, events that are types, places that are types, the typology of Scripture where something in the Old Testament represents something else, something prophetic, something future, that's called typology. And it's throughout the Bible. But to me this is the greatest of them all. So let's turn back to Genesis 22. Genesis 22. God is so great the way He does this. This is uh, He gives us Bible stories that you think, well, that's for children. Children need the Bible stories. We all need the Bible stories, let me tell you. Yes, children can learn the Bible stories, but then adults need to learn the Bible stories and the doctrine that goes with them the blessings that we have to see the typology of Abraham and Isaac and the the anti-type of God the Father and God the Son and the purchase of our eternal life. So in Genesis 22, after waiting 100 years to have a baby, it came about after these things that God tested Abraham. Now this is a test. It's not a temptation. God does not tempt anyone, but He tests all of us. He tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take now your son, your only son. And the Greek is monoganes, and we're going to study this, we'll show you this. It's the same language from John three sixteen, that the Father so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave his monogenes, his one of a kind son. Whom you love. You want to know something else extraordinary? the very first time the word love appears anywhere in the Bible. That's the very first use of love. And it's not between Adam and Eve, and it's not between anybody else in the generations between Adam and, and Abraham. I'm sure Noah loved Mrs. Noah. It's just the Bible doesn't tell us that. The first use of love. I'm sure Adam loved Eve, you know. But the Bible doesn't use the word in those episodes. The Bible waits, delays, if you will. We've got to get 21 chapters into the Bible, 22 chapters into the Bible, before we encounter the word love. And when it uses it, it's showing a father and a son. Because it's the picture of God the Father and Jesus Christ. This is, this is marvelous, marvelous doctrine here. So take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Now human sacrifice is evil. It is an abomination. And the Gentile nations that, that participate in human sacrifice they were, they were roundly condemned by God. And the, the Jews were warned not to be like the Gentiles, not to take part in human sacrifice. Human sacrifice is among the most abhorrent abominations that any culture can, and usually it, it sparks in, in divine judgment. And so this command itself, that's part of why this command itself doesn't make any sense. Why is the living God who is the source of all life commanding me to murder, to sacrifice my son? To offer a human sacrifice. Remember Abraham came out of Ur of the Chaldees. Abraham was well familiar with all the religious system of the Babylonians of the the, the whole part of the ancient world. And now being told to sacrifice his son through human sacrifice. Well thankfully we we already read Hebrews that we know that he considered that God is able to raise him from the dead. Okay? That's information we don't read about in Genesis. That thought process is not recorded here by Moses in the book of Genesis. So take and offer him there on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So it's more walking by faith, it's more walking out and being obedient saying where do I go now Lord? Left, right, straight ahead, where am I going? And you don't know until you get there. And he says alright this is the place. That's called walking by faith. And God is so good at that. Because I think if we knew the destination ahead of time, we'd get intimidated and we'd chicken out and we'd bail. But God takes us one step at a time, one day at a time, we're walking with Him. And then, oh, wow, look where we are. Yeah, look where I brought you, is what God says. Because His grace is marvelous. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. He split the wood for the burnt offering, arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Now why did it, why was it a three day journey? <laughs> because three is a powerful number and God teaches us a lot of lessons. This story is typology and we're going to learn that. That there's typology involved in everything that happens here in this episode. And so the fact that it takes the third day is, uh, is a blessing. And we know, of course, that Jesus was raised on the third day after he died on the cross for our sins. Abraham said to his young men, this is such a powerful statement, you can see his faith in this verse. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the lad will go over there. We will worship and we will return to you the same verb for worship, the same verb for return is the same first person plural, we are going to do this. He doesn't say we're going to go there and worship and then I'm coming back. He says we're going to worship and we are coming back. Now the servants, we're not sure what they knew. We're not sure that the servants even had a clue that Abraham was ordered to, to sacrifice Isaac. Maybe he didn't stand out for them at all. It's not clear what the servants were told. But Abraham said, we're going up there and we're coming back. Because as Hebrews says, he considered that God is able to raise him from the dead. He's fully intending to kill his son and then watch his son come back to life so they can walk back down the mountain and, uh, and do this. By the way, this is the very same mountain that became the Temple Mount in Jerusalem the very same mountain the threshing floor of around on the jebusite all right so abraham so i love that we will worship we will return to you most english bibles only have one we go ahead and pencil the second we in there cuz it should be in there both of those verbs for worship and return are both first person plural we will so abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on isaac his son that's the typology Remember this is all typology. The son carries the wood. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. That's what the father carries. The father is the one that executes the judgment. The father is the one that applies in the case of our salvation it's the father who applies the wrath of judgment. So the two of them walked on together As Jesus said, I and the Father are one. They are in agreement. They are walking together. But Isaac has questions. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father. He said, here I am, my son. And it's kind of neat because when when the Lord said, Abraham, he said, here I am. And then when Isaac says, my father, he says, here I am, my my son. And here's the question. He said, behold, the fire and the wood But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Now, we pondered a little bit ago, what did the servants know? Now we've got to ask ourselves, what did Isaac know? (laughs) What did he not know? What hadn't been told him? Clearly, he didn't know that there was not going to be a lamb, at least in this verse. He doesn't know that he is the lamb. He wants to know where it is. And uh, Abraham said, God will provide for himself. God will provide. Jehovah Jireh. God will provide. Himself, the Lamb. Now, you can read that a couple of different ways. He will provide either for himself, the Lamb, or God will provide himself, the Lamb. And that's what I like. That kind of fond. I'm partial to that translation. God will provide. Himself the Lamb, which becomes prophetic. God Himself the Lamb, which of course is Jesus. God will provide for Himself the Lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Now, again, we ask ourselves, what did Isaac know and when did he know it? How did he accept this answer as valid? And then how did he volitionally agree with this procedure when he gets up to the top of the mountain and there's no lamb. And when his father says, get on that altar. And his father ties him down. At some point in either verse 8, verse 9, somewhere in here, Isaac understands what his father is saying. And he submits to it. So the two of them walked on together. They came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. And bound his son Isaac. Again, we don't know his exact age. Is he a teenager? Is he 12? Is he 33? I've read every theory under the sun (laughs) related to the age of Isaac here. Fact is, we don't know. But he, um, and even the Jewish rabbis had a bunch of debates about this too, about how old he was. But at the point where he bound his son Isaac, remembering that this is typology. Since this is typology, and Hebrews tells us this is typology, should we read this verse and imagine that Isaac is kicking and screaming and, and fighting him and, and non-cooperative at this point? Not at all. Because we know what the antitype is. We know the fulfillment is Jesus. Who went willingly as a lamb without raising his voice and submitting to the will of the Father? He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And, and no more words from Isaac here. He doesn't say a thing. It's like the lamb doesn't say a thing. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Stretched out and took and uh, to slay his son. I think the traditions are correct that it may even be that his arm was in the downward motion whatever the case may be and that the angel of the Lord stayed his hand and grabbed his hand but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said Abraham Abraham notice the doubling of that name and he said here I am each step of the way each step of the way he's walking by faith so he said, "Do not stretch out your hand against the lad." That's our only clue as to the age of uh, the age of Isaac here in this whole chapter is that expression "lad" there in verse twelve. I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. There's monogenes again, your only son from me. And this is Hebrew, so the language is different in Hebrew. But when they translated this into Greek in the Septuagint, they used the monogenes vocabulary that John will use in John 3.16 and other New Testament passages. Okay, That's not an accident, not a coincidence. For now I know that you fear God. Interesting verse, if you're ever studying the doctrine of omniscience God knows everything. He's always known everything. He's known everything before there was anything. When all there was was God, God knew everything. Why did he need this display? Okay. Fallacy in the question. He didn't need the display, but he's using the display. And now he knows experientially. He knows not just through omniscience. He knows through observation and experience. You can know things multiple ways. And we often, we know things multiple ways. We know things because we we were told them. We know things because we saw them. We know things because we did them or all the above. So God knows, he's always known with omniscience, that Abraham loves him. But now he knows by observation, by demonstration, so that the typology can be used to preach the gospel to unbelievers in, the, in Old Testament times. That there's a loving father who loves his son that's willing to kill his son. All right. Now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. A great way to measure how much you fear God is to ask yourself, where do you draw the line? <laughs> Are you willing to walk the Christian way of life as long as it's convenient? Are you willing to walk the Christian way of life as long as it doesn't cost you too much? Unless there's something better going on? But if there's a, is there a line you won't cross, a bridge you won't cross, or pick your metaphor? Is there, is there a point that you say, haven't I done enough, God, let somebody else do this now? Well, that's uh, it's a bit of a benchmark for where your faith is and where your fear of the Lord is. Because there should be no line. It's be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. There's, there's no line. If God asked it of you, He asked it of you. Do you fear God or do you not fear God? And so uh, you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. If there's one thing you withhold, then that's one thing that needs to be dealt with in your, in your uh, faith before God. I suspect many of us have more than one thing. <laughs> that we might have you know, a dozen things or a hundred things. And we're still reaching that point in our maturity. All right. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked and behold. I, lo- I love this language. Because it's so, it's, it's, it's drawn out. It's, it's um, repeated. All these expressions for seeing. He raised his eyes. He looked. Behold. <laughs> Why didn't I see that before? Why didn't Abraham or Isaac see that before? Neither one of them saw it. They got up there. They looked around. This place is Jehovah Jireh. After all, God will provide and there's nothing here. So Isaac's, Abraham says, all right, Isaac, it's you. You're the lamb. Isaac says, yes, sir, I'm the lamb. He lays on the altar. Abraham ties him down. Okay, That's how I'm understanding, I'm interpolating Hebrews back now into Genesis 22. Alright? Understand, I'm not making this up. I'm taking what God gives us in Hebrews 11 and now reading it back into Genesis 22. And now they see something they didn't see before. And I think that's a truth as well. When you walk by faith, you're going to see things you never saw before. And in fact, until you go through the toughest times and come through the other side, then you'll start seeing things differently, won't you? All right. So Abraham raised his eyes, looked, behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. Not too bad for the ram. <laughs> well, but that's, see, that's what gets him stuck there. He's, he's got no options. He's stuck. And Abraham went and took the ram, offered him for a burnt offering in place of his son. And so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. You see, when there is a sacrifice demanded, God may in fact accept a a substitute in its place, as is the case here. When Abraham discovered the ram, it becomes a valid substitute. You can imagine the conversation between Abraham and the Lord here, alright Lord the Lord will provide, the Lord has provided, is this what you want me? I'm going to save Isaac now and I'm going to kill this ram in his place. This is now the substitute for Isaac. God says great, do it. Because that's the doctrine. The doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Adam and Eve were taught that, Cain and Abel were taught that, every generation since the fall has been taught that. Now Abraham is able to take that concept and put it to application by providing the substitute for his son. And for Isaac, that's great. For Jesus, there's no ram caught in the thicket. When Jesus got the cross to Golgotha, there's no ram caught in the thicket at Golgotha. There's no substitute for Jesus. There's no other way. Jesus said, if it's possible, let this cup pass by me. It was not possible. If Jesus does not sacrifice Himself, we don't get saved. There is no, Jehovah-Jireh has no alternative to Jesus. He is the one and only, the one of a kind. So Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide, Jehovah-Jireh. And said, as it is said to this day, even in Moses' lifetime as he's writing the book of Genesis, it was still proverbial. In the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. So the typology becomes proverbial. He receives him back as a type. The typology is not just for Abraham, it's for Abraham and his seed because the promise is for Abraham and his seed. The typology was from this day moving forward for the whole history of Israel. Not only is there the typology, but there's the proverb. And so here's what it said. In the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. This is Old Testament evangelism right here. This is looking forward. Messiah is coming. And in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. This is what they have to look forward to. So when Jesus is trying to get his disciples ready for the cross, they should have rejoiced. They should have been thrilled when he said, I'm going to be betrayed and crucified and raised again on the third day. And they should have responded by faith with, in the Mount of the Lord, it will be provided. The Lord will provide. Then all of this, and of course, they didn't. They were very distraught and subjected. In fact, most of the disciples didn't. Need, none of the disciples believed until after the resurrection. Related to those things. All right. Then the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time from heaven. And said, "By myself, I have sworn." declares the Lord. Something powerful can happen because of the victory there. Because of the victory on Mount Moriah. Something powerful can happen next. Had it not been victorious, this wouldn't be happening. But Yahweh is making a vow in his name by myself I have sworn. The God who cannot lie and he vows. He takes an oath because you have done this thing and have not withheld your only son your your only son indeed I will greatly bless you now he's already had some of this expressed in the Abrahamic covenant and those promises are still in effect, still valid, still eternal but now he's going to take the earthly metaphor of dust of the earth and he's going to add to it a heavenly metaphor of the stars of heaven I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. He gives both metaphors here in this verse. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. Anyway, we have the restatement of the Abrahamic covenant here. It's going to be confirmed to Isaac, confirmed to Jacob. The future of all this. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Because, because... The role of Abraham in in establishing this typology is he's going to be greatly rewarded for this. Can you imagine? All right. So Abraham returned to his young man. They arose, went together to Beersheba. Abraham lived at Beersheba. All right. So this is the greatest typology in Scripture. You can use this, you can witness to unbelievers with this, you can witness to Muslims with this. I've done this. Because the Muslims have this story in their Quran, they just change it up a bit. Okay, the Muslims, when they when the when the Arabs wrote the Quran, they changed the story because they hate the Jews anyway. And so, the story here is Ishmael. It's the Arab kid that Ab- that Abraham loves. It's Ishmael that goes up the mountain. It's Ishmael that Abraham is willing to sacrifice. It's Ishmael when Allah tells Abraham. Don't sacrifice the son that you love. So they're they're totally ripping off a, a Jewish story. They're just swapping out the Arab kid for the Jewish kid. Okay? But now, see, here's the thing. You can change a story, but what are you going to do about the doctrine that goes with it? What are you going to do with the typology that goes with it? Because they don't have that. Their Quran says that Allah does not beget. Allah does not have a son. Allah is too grand to beget. He's beyond humanity. Allah doesn't have a son. So they rip off the story, they pervert the story, but they, they deny the doctrine that the story was designed to teach. And then when they talk about Jesus, they say, well, he's a prophet, but he's not the son of God. And he's not he didn't die on the cross. The Quran changes that story too. And so there's this myth about while Jesus was rescued that Barabbas took his place, or sometimes Judas took his place. They're, they can't even get their story straight when they're, when they're lying about this. And they say that Jesus didn't die on the cross. Somebody that looked like him took his place. Well, you're miss, again, you're perverting the story and you're missing the point of the story. Because a ram can take the place of Isaac, but nothing, nobody can take the place of Jesus. So you're telling me that Barabbas took his place, was disguised because Allah's kind of a trickster. Allah made Barabbas look like Jesus, put him on the cross, killed him. But Jesus was caught up to be with Allah without dying. That's the Muslim story. Anyway, I have been somewhat successful in, in various discussions with Muslims going back to my jail, my time in the jail. This is years ago now. But using this very story because it's in their Quran, they know the story. And then you're able to ask them, well, what is the typology? What is the theology? What is the, what is the proverbial application? What is, what is this all about? Why would Allah do this? Well, Allah is sovereign. He can tell us to do whatever He wants us to do, okay? And they have no, doc, no other foundation to build on. But we do. This is the glorious thing about our Bible and the, what I think is the greatest typology in Scripture. Now with respect to being the only begotten, Abraham fathered Ishmael through Hagar. We know that from Genesis 16. So Isaac is not even the firstborn. He's the secondborn. He is the firstborn of Abraham and Sarah. That's significant because the covenant was with Abraham and Sarah, not with Abraham and Hagar. But Abram was renamed Abraham. Sarah was renamed, uh, uh, Sarai was renamed Sarah. Hagar was not renamed. Hagar was sent packing with Ishmael. And the covenant is with Abraham and Sarah, their son, Isaac, the one of a kind. But even after Isaac, even after Sarah dies, he's going to have six other sons with Keturah. Did you know that? Genesis 25, Abraham remarries after he's been widowed. Because, you know, he's 160. He's still... <sighs> And I don't know. I mean, he had some non-functional years that God miraculously restored, and then uh, Sarah's gone, and he's... Anyway, he, he remarried. Nothing wrong with that. And had six more sons with Keturah. Significantly, they also were uh, granted cash settlements and departed. They were blessed as being sons of Abraham, but it was very clear They were not to remain in that land, they were not heirs of Isaac's promise. The Abrahamic covenant is only through Isaac, not through Ishmael and not through the sons of Keturah who Ishmael came to dominate anyway in in later history. Abraham fathered Ishmael through Hagar, he fathered six other sons through Keturah, yet Isaac was Abraham's one-of-a-kind son, one-of-a-kind Anytime you read only begotten, go ahead and pencil that out and pencil in one of a kind. One of a kind. And I think we end up with some of these issues whereby there's confusion all the way back to King James time and even earlier in the Bishop's Bible and some of the other translations of the monogonese. Only begotten, one of a kind. Monogonese, M-O-N-O-G-E-N-E-S, monogonese. Monogenes. And we got a good assortment of New Testament verses and uh, Old Testament substitution verses from Monoganes. Let's just uh, clear some things up. We don't do a lot of exegesis in this hour, but understand the verb genao means to beget. And, and there's no question on that. It means to beget, genao. And we have that's G-E-N-A-O if you want to write that down. And genao means to beget. Genos is a noun that means kind. And the confusion arises, I think, etymologically, but also theologically. Because monogenao, or monogenaes, comes from genos, not genao. It comes from kind, not begetting. And the reason why that's an issue is because what makes him a -a one-of-a-kind son is that he's the son the father begat. Ooh, this. I mean, I better write this down. <laughs> All right. So, we know what a genos is, right? You study uh, in, in in plant and animal classifications. You got phylum, kingdom, genus, species. And so, when you get down to the genus and species end of things in the animal kingdom, right? You get down to the genus. That's your kind. That's the kind in Scripture with everything that reproduces after its kind it could be variations within species but kind replicates within its kind and so that's the greek that's the greek genos is kind and so a monos genos is a one of a kind that's a one of a kind now a monos genao would be a single birth a one and only born and only born. And where some of the confusion comes in and some of the mistranslations and other issues is that people have taken monogenes as being monos plus genao the only born instead of monos plus genos the only one of its kind. In other words the one of a kind son. So for Abraham and Isaac Isaac was his one-of-a-kind son. He was the miracle son, the son of faith. The son with Sarah. The only son with Sarah. The one-of-a-kind son. Hagar did not produce a one-of-a-kind son. Ishmael was not a one-of-a-kind son. There's plenty of, plenty of sons out there that are born from young Egyptian handmaidens. Right? There's tons of sons you can have with concubines. But the, the miracle son, the one-of-a-kind son... The son of promise is to the 100-year-old man and the 90-year-old wife and the faith that that makes that happen. So Manos and Genos, one of a kind, unique, one of a kind. All right. Now, again, I think the reason why theologically people took it there to the Gana'o instead of the Genos, because when you think about sons of God, how many sons of God are there? Well, I'm a son of God. Are you a son of God? Right. Believers today are sons of God, daughters of God, okay. Uh, angels, even before humans, there are, there's a classification of angels called the Beneha Ha Elohim, the sons of God. And even some of them are called Elohim, they're called gods. And then there's other angels that are called sons of God, right? Remember when God created the heavens and the earth and when he brought the angels and they could watch and they could sing about it? Sons of God. So if there are plural sons of God what makes Jesus the one of a kind son of God? See? Because he's the only son, because they're all created beings. They're all created angels, created spirit beings. Jesus is unique in that he's not created. He's God himself. God the Son is uncreated, eternal. Is God, just as God the Father is God. And He's also begotten of the Father. Today I have begotten thee. He is the only Son that the Father said, Today I have begotten thee. All those other angelic sons of God, they were all created. None of them were begotten. They were all created angelic beings. But Jesus alone did the Father beget in his humanity. Did he beget the hypostatic union so that God the Son could become the God-man? So he is the one-of-a-kind son. He is the only begotten son. That is a fact. It's a fact because of today I have begotten thee. It's not a fact because monogonese stems from monogono. All right. May have to listen to the MP3 (laughs) a couple times. But I think it's significant. All right. Let's look at our monogonese sons. We've already seen... In Genesis 22, I highlighted as we went through in verse 2, verse 12, and verse 16, it's stated over and over and over again. Is that because God enjoys being redundant? Probably. Because we need the redundancy. That's how it sinks in. That's how we hold on to it. That's how we drill it into our thinking. We hear it again and again and again. So in verse 2, it's your only son. Take now your son, your only son, whom you love. In verse 12, he said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad. Do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Your only son. Your one of a kind. Verse 16, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your one of a kind, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you. Three times it's used there. Nowhere else it's used, it's used in Proverbs 4-3. Here's another evangelistic verse. Here's another Old Testament soteriological text. I'm starting to find more and more of them. Proverbs 4. Hero sons, in the instruction of a father. Give attention that you may gain understanding. For I give you sound teaching. Do not abandon my instruction. When I was a son to my father. Now who's writing the Proverbs? Solomon's writing Proverbs. Who is his father? King David. Who was his mother? Bathsheba. And was he the firstborn? He was not the firstborn. The firstborn actually died. The firstborn was taken in judgment. Because of the adultery with David and Bathsheba. You talk about a rough start to a marriage. (laughs) Okay? You commit commit adultery, murder the husband, cover your tracks until the prophet shows up and exposes everything. You think you got away with your sin for nine months and now the baby's born and now you're caught. And then the baby dies. God kills the, the, the child. And so with the death of that firstborn... David and Bathsheba had some recovery to engage in. Some spiritual recovery and repentance. They had to grow together. They had to humble themselves. Remember God had made an unconditional covenant promise to David and he can't lie to David. And this uh, Bathsheba adultery is not going to derail the Davidic covenant. It's not going to derail our salvation. The line of Christ is still on the way. And it's going to come to the very next child that's born and that's going to be Solomon. It's going to be Solomon. So, When I was a son to my father, tender and the monogonese, the one of a kind in the sight of my mother. We have monogonese language here as it pertains to Solomon. And the the family background here with David and Bathsheba in raising this boy, the heir to the throne, the heir to the Davidic covenant. Then he taught me and said to me, Let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. Acquire wisdom, acquire understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. See, the Bible didn't hide David's sins. The Bible didn't hide Abraham's sins. The Bible told us all about that lie with Sarah and all the trouble that ended up with. Told us all about the human effort with Hagar and the Ishmael that ended up with. But the Bible gives us this the Father and His Son and the, the promise of our eternal life. Now it's, bring it forward 400 years and now you've got David and, uh, and uh, Solomon. I'm sorry, bring it forward 1,000 years. From 2,000 B.C. in Abraham's day to 1,000 B.C. in David's day. And now you have a monogamous, a one-of-a-kind son. A son that's born to David and Bathsheba. It's an amazing thing. How about Zechariah 12.10? Zechariah, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Right there at the end of your Old Testament. God gives the final prophetic word through Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi and then He's silent for 400 years until uh, His son is born in Bethlehem. Zechariah 12. So The problem is is that uh, They're going to crucify their Messiah. And God tells them this ahead of time. And uh, then He's going to bring them through tribulation before the kingdom can come. Israel has to go through tribulation before the millennium. And uh, so without reading the first nine verses on this, but understand in that day, that day, we're going to see, verse 8 says, "...the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem." And the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David. And the house of David will be like God, the angel of the Lord before them. And in that day I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. That's when he rescues them at Armageddon. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look upon me whom they have pierced. <laughs> 500 years before the cross. And he's writing about this. They will look upon me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for a monogoness, as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. And in that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadadrimmon in the plain of Megiddo. It's curious to me, this mourning that takes place. When does it stop? The land will mourn every family by itself the family of the house of David by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself, their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shemites by itself, and their wives by themselves. That's a lot of mourning. All the families that remain, every family by itself, their wives by themselves. All right. Now someday we'll teach Zechariah. But there's uh, monogonase. Monogonase in Genesis, monogonase in Proverbs, monogonase in Zechariah. So are we shocked when the Apostle John uses that language when he writes his gospel? The monogonase. And even before we get to John 3.16, we have it in John 1. The monogamous, the one of a kind. There is not another like Jesus Christ. All right, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John 1.14 says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is how the gospel opens. The gospel opens with the Word, with the Logos. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. God the Son has always existed. God the Son, along with the Holy Spirit, along with the Father, we've had an eternal trinity. That's God forever. The Word. But it's not God the Father who became flesh. It's not God the Holy Spirit who became flesh. It's God the Son. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw His glory. Glory is of the what? One of a kind. Glory is of the one of a kind from the Father, full of grace and truth. Glory is of the monogenes from the Father. You know, part of me says, hey, this just don't even translate it. Just leave it as monogenes and take it from there do that with a lot of other Hebrew words and Greek words. Let's just leave it with Monogenes and be done with it. All right. Glory is of the Monogenes from the Father, full of grace and truth. We have Monogenes, And again in verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The Monogenes God, the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. He has exegeted him. Want to know why we're a doctrinal Bible church that engages in exegesis? Because that's what God does. Jesus Christ is the exegete of God the Father. The Greek verb there is exe, is the word where we get exegesis from. Okay? He has explained him. Exegesis, when you explain the text and you bring it out, you say, here's all the, the great Hebrew stuff, here's all the great Greek stuff. And if you don't speak Hebrew and Greek, well then, here's the best we can do in English. That's exegesis. And Jesus Christ exegeted God the Father. You know, why? Because you can't see God the Father. But the Word became flesh, and you can see that. And He dwelt among us. In His earthly life, His ministry, His message, His miracles, His death on the cross, His resurrection, all of that. That's our testimony. It's what the Father has sent for us. So He's only begotten, one of a kind, in John 1.14, John 1.18, of course, John 3.16, we know very well. John 3.16. Somebody yesterday asked me this, just out of the blue. Saw it on a t-shirt in a gift shop, and all it said was John 3.16. So they figured I might know, and they, they asked me, what is John 3.16? I'm glad you asked able to quote it. Everybody can quote it. It's the famous, most famous verse in the Bible. Oh yeah, I've heard that verse before. I didn't know it was John 3.16. Oh. Well, do you believe it? Are you saved? All right. God so loved the world that he gave his monogonese, one of a kind, unique, I think uniquely born son is maybe the Holman translation. He gave his one of a kind son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Faith in Christ. Believes in Him. Not facts about Him. Not what He did. Him. Believes in Him, shall not perish, but have eternal life. Then verse 18. He who believes in Him. Not facts about Him. Not what He did. But who He is, what He is. Believe in Him. For the eternal life He's promising you. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. That's the default. Every human being in Adam is born in Adam, lost, condemned to the lake of fire. That's the default. You've been judged already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten, the monogamous Son of God. The monogamous Son of God. Only begotten. See, when you're studying Abraham and Isaac and you've got the typology of Mount Moriah there, that is all about the Father and the Son and the, the monogonese. Faith in the monoganes is the only object for your eternal life. Over to 1 John, 1 John 4, 9. Some 50 years later when uh, John begins to write his epistles in the, uh, we believe, after the destruction of Jerusalem in the 80s, A.D. First John 4, 9. You think, you think John learned something in the meantime? Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. See, this is part of our paternity in Christ, that we are born of the Father. The one who does not love does not know God, nor God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifest in us that God has sent His monogamous, His monogamous Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Because He was faithful on the cross, He gets to be the firstborn of many brethren. We get to be uh, sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. All of this is uh, just a uh, Marvelous way to lead someone to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ to give. You can use the Old Testament to give the typology and then bring them to John 3.16 and show them this. Alright. And then try to tie this together here. In Hebrews 11.19 we're told that Abraham considered that God was able to raise his son from the dead. Well why would he consider that? Well He wasn't the only one that considered that. The promise of resurrection was considered, it was known, and it was believed in long before the Old Testament was written. The promise of resurrection was considered, known, and believed in long before the Old Testament was written. I think when Cain killed Abel God taught the doctrine of resurrection to Adam and Eve He taught the doctrine of resurrection to to, uh, Seth that all the generations beyond knew that while men were dying they would live again by faith in the coming Messiah. And the seed of the woman would, would provide for resurrection. So Hebrews eleven nineteen should not be uh, unusual. We shouldn't think that Abraham was had a, a baseless faith or he had no grounding for his belief. He had the, the promises of God for the grounding of his belief. So did Job. What would Job didn't have any scriptures. Job was probably two generations before Abraham. And Job says uh, I know that my Redeemer lives. In Job 19 he says, oh that my words were written oh that they were inscribed in a book that with an iron stylus and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. Just cracks me up every time I read that. His words are in a book and we're reading them right now. And far better than being carved in stone They're going to to outlast this universe. When this universe is destroyed by fire, God's word will survive. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. Here is a believer from the third millennium BC, and he knows the doctrine of redemption. He knows that his Redeemer is a personal Redeemer, and that his personal Redeemer is alive. He knows who his Redeemer is and he knows where his Redeemer is and he knows where his Redeemer is coming to that he will at the last stand on the earth. At the last he will take his stand on the earth. He knows about a Redeemer and he knows about a second coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. So did Enoch in the seventh generation from God. He prophesied concerning the second advent. And then he knows about resurrection. Look at verse 26. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I will see God. So after I've been dead and buried and rotted away, my body's coming back. Yet from my flesh I shall see God. This is faith in a coming bodily resurrection. So he knows about redemption, he knows about resurrection, he knows about the future stand upon this earth. From my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold who my eyes will see and not another. He knows that it's a personal relationship with a one-on-one, that you have eyes for that one and no one else. Isn't that what we say in, in terms of marriage? That it's, uh, it's, it's one man, one woman forsaking all others. You have eyes only for one. If your eyes start looking elsewhere, that's a problem for your marriage, okay? Here he says, I have eyes only for one. We sing that hymn, I long to see my Savior most of all. All right. Whom I myself shall behold, whom my eyes will see, and not another. My heart faints within me. You want to see your mom again? You want to see your dad again? Other loved ones that are in heaven? You want to see your spouse again if you're widowed? There's probably a long list of people you want to see when you get to heaven, but let me tell you who you want to see most of all. First and foremost, Job said it here. My heart faints within me. And so the promise of resurrection, it was known, it was believed in. It was considered, it was known, it was believed in long before the Old Testament was written. Here's another one for you Psalm 17 and verse 15. Psalm 17. This is a prayer of David. This is a thousand BC. He says, um, let's see. Verse 13 says, "Arise, O Lord, confront him, bring him low, deliver my soul from the wicked with your sword, from men with your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. Remember in the world you will have tribulation? Just just that's all right. We're in Christ, we're saved." whose portion is in this life, whose belly you fill with your treasure, they are satisfied with children and leave their abundance to their babes. But as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. What a contrast. You see the difference between verse 14 and verse 15? Here I'm out of time, and this is a message all by itself. Look at this. For the, for the worldly-minded people, all they can think about is what they're living to their children when they die. For David, he can't wait to wake up and see the Lord face to face. So they leave their abundance to their babes. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I shall see him. I shall see him. A lot of our hymns, Communicate this. I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. See we say good night here right? But good morning up there. We go to sleep here we wake up there. All of these uh, metaphors all of these images of what it's like to pass from mortality into glory. Finally uh, we don't have time but you can in James chapter 2, you got the faith of Abraham, which illustrates experiential justification. Abraham didn't get saved the night that he sacrificed Isaac. It was not positional justification on that episode, it was experiential sanctification on that episode. It's the perfecting of positional justification. But I'm out of time. That's James 2, verses 21 through 23. All right. The story of Abraham and Isaac. And uh, Hebrews rightly puts it in here in chapter 11. The story of Abraham and Isaac. Alright. We'll come back next week. Actually next week we're showing a video. We'll come back in two weeks to our book of Hebrews study. Next week is Potluck Sunday. Next week is the uh, um, we have that the video I want to share. The ordination video from 1994. And in fact, Sandy t- tells me that Emil and Evelyn are going to come to town and they're going to they're participate with us. And you'll see, you'll see a much younger Emil up there on the, on the video and the message that he gave and the message that John Eichmann gave and all of, the, uh, all of the festivities from that night. Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for Abraham and Isaac, for the picture that you give us of a father and a son, the son of your love. The son that you were willing to sacrifice. The son that you did sacrifice. Unlike Abraham, didn't have to. He was willing to, but he was given a substitute instead. You were willing to, and there was no substitute. There was no alternative. He had to die so that we could have eternal life. And I thank you that you were willing to kill him. He was willing to be killed. He was willing to accept your wrath for our sin. And I pray as we learn these things, and we know these things, we've known them for years maybe, but as we, as we learn a way to teach these things to, uh, to others, to children, to anyone, Father, I pray that we'll be equipped, that we'll be motivated, that, uh, Father, we might be quick to give the, uh, the account that is within us. Thank you, Father, for equipping us in this way. I thank you and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Alrighty.